this is 100% going to be one of those episodes where I get myself in trouble at some point because no one is here to keep me on the straight and narrow. It is Monday, the day before this episode airs, and all anybody wants to talk about in the world this past week is Dogecoin, and I feel like I would be remiss if I did not mention that part of the reason we're running so late on recording this week is I was really hoping I'd be recording from a private island uh, based off all the money I was going to make on Dogecoin after Elon Musk appeared on SNL Saturday night, and I did not make billions of dollars like I hoped I would, um, so I'm I'm a little salty about it, honestly. I really, I really thought that was gonna that was gonna come through. I at least thought it was gonna hit a dollar, um, and I was gonna be a hundred air when that happened, but it did not happen. And and so, uh, you know, back to the old grindstone, back to work, I guess. No private islands um, where I can do my own conservation work right there on my own little, you know, slice of paradise. Uh, I did read. <laughs> it's it's fun not having somebody else in the room to look at you to know if you're making sense or not. I did read where uh, SpaceX is going to take Dogecoin as payment, I guess for rides on SpaceX rockets. So that sounds like a pretty compelling use of my Dogecoins. Um, If I had 50 bajillion more of them, I would probably be able to do such a thing as take a ride on a SpaceX rocket. I don't know if I want to go to space. I'm not sure space is for me. Um, I've always been fascinated by it. Like my kids were way into it. Growing up, I was a little bit into it, but I was way more into like hunting, fishing, nature, the outdoors, water, that kind of stuff. I'm not sure I'm down for space. Will you guys go to space? I don't know. I, I'm getting no feedback on this right now, so I don't know if people will go to space or not. But let me know. Like, let me know after you listen to this if you would go to space on a SpaceX rocket. Like, let's say they made it commodity space travel. Let's say you could go to space. What, what's reasonable? I don't, I don't know. What's a trip to Hawaii cost? I'm going to say, I'm going to guess that's a thousand bucks for a ticket to Hawaii. Although maybe with COVID, maybe it's less than that now. But let's say you could get on a rocket and go to space for five grand. So like expensive, but not unreasonably expensive. This is not what I intended to talk about, but this is what I'm talking about now because I'm, I'm down this road. Would you pay $5,000? Like where's the tipping point wherein you'd say, yeah, I think I think I would save up the money and take the family on you know a cruise to space. Oh boy. I don't, I don't, I, I'm out. I'm not doing that. I don't even want to spend $5,000 to go to France. What, what does Ron Swanson say? History started in 1776. Everything before that was a mistake. So that's kind of how I feel about travel in general. Like you can ask Emily, most of my travel, I try to keep in the state of Florida. I don't really like to go other places. Although we are going to go to North Carolina this summer, ironically enough, but I usually like to stay home. This is my place. I like the beach. I like the woods. I like everything about Florida. And so as a kid, that's how we always did vacation. We always went somewhere in the state. We didn't go away someplace. Anyway, not sure I would sign up for space if I'm kind of reluctant to sign up for France or Europe or something. It's not, like I said, not at all what I intended to talk about. But since I'm talking about space, wow, what a segue I'm about to make here. Did you guys see, I don't know if it's already fallen or not. Like this may be old news by the time this airs, but a Chinese made rocket is supposed to fall back to earth. And they're saying the chances of it falling on you are very, very low. I'm just going to let that, I'm just going to pause for a second. Cause that's how I read it. The chances of it falling on you are very, very low. Not sure how you guys feel about rockets falling from space. Not a thing that I really love. Um, we are, I am team non rockets falling from space guy. So, and I don't feel like that's a, um, you know, we have team spraying, team not spraying, team 
send it south, team, team slow the flow. Like we have all these teams kind of in the conservation world. I want to say I'm putting a flag in the ground right here. We are team no – oh, my dogs heard me knock on the on the desk and now they're barking. I am team – we are leading team no rockets falling from space ever. Is that a controversial position to take? Probably, but, you know, I live I live my life on the bleeding edge. Like uh, I like to be out there a little bit. So join us if you would like to be team no rockets falling from space in the future. Um, but since I brought that up, I'm segueing to ads. That's what I'm doing here. If a rocket were to fall on you from outer space, first person you want to call is Fletcher Hallett, Hallett Insurance 904, or no, wait, scratch that. If it falls on you, I would call Harold Adjusting Services. <laughs> Craig Harold, friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, um, has re-upped his ad. Harold Adjusting Services, um, it, basically he's a public adjuster. So if you have damage, you have a claim, and you're having trouble getting your insurance to pay, like your insurance is like, dude, Rocket did not fall from space onto your house. Craig is the guy that can come out and help you negotiate that, figure that out and get to the bottom of it so that you can get your claim submitted, paid, everything else. You can call Craig 863-559-3405 or text. The other thing is, if you decide to reach out to Craig, you should ask him about his wood duck boxes because dude's having a wood ducks wood duck crisis at his house. He's got dump nesting going on. He went from no wood ducks to all the wood ducks. It's just been an ongoing saga there. So um, if you don't want to talk about adjusting, you could talk about uh, wood duck nest boxes. But if if the rocket falls on your house, make sure to reach out to Harold Adjusting Services. You can find them on Facebook, Harold Adjusting Services. That said, if you're worried about the rocket falling on your house, like you think, hey, this rocket may, I, I'm, I'm concerned now. I wasn't concerned yesterday. Now Travis has brought this up and I feel like it's a valid concern. Go ahead and get your policy checked with Fletcher Hallett, Hallett Insurance, 904-315-5812. You can reach out to Fletcher. We've talked about him a billion times on this show. Great guy, loves hunting, loves fishing, loves conservation. Just one of our people, just like Craig is. Um, but go ahead and get your policy checked for rocket coverage. Uh, I'm going to guess it's covered, but I'm not allowed to provide expert advice. So, um I just feel like this is a thing that's kind of hanging out there. And I want you guys to all be covered and all be safe. No rockets falling on houses in the cast and blast universe. Again, team, no rockets falling from space. The reason I am by myself today is I've got several things I want to catch you guys up on. If you're new to the show, this is not the usual format for our Tuesday shows. Usually our Tuesday show is a lot more freewheeling, a lot more fun. It's myself, Emily, and sometimes we have a guy named Nate. Who, who occasionally attends the show and, and weighs in with us. And that's tongue-in-cheek joke because Nate's, Nate's been on, if this is the 225th show, he's been on 200 of them. Anyway, um, Nate has been fishing all week. We've had trouble lining our schedules up. M actually was supposed to schedule, was recording with me yesterday, but I was like, look, I've got so much stuff I need to go over with a lot of our listeners that I haven't given reports on. Let me just do it solo because I can just kind of fly through this. I won't bore you guys to death. I'll keep it lighthearted. I'll keep it fun. Uh, but I will tell you some of these things I hit on, I will be releasing a patron show in the next week to 10 days that will follow up on some of these items and probably go a little bit deeper about some of my opinions on them, um, some thoughts, feelings, strategies, things like that. But the first one I want to tackle is the Orange Hammock meeting. Orange Hammock's new WMA going in Southwest Florida. I think it's Sarasota County. I'm not actually sure. It's between Northport, Northport, in Sarasota 
and uh, a lot of guys a lot of guys in the cast and blast world um, mike melton mike elfenbein uh, tons of folks out there have worked really hard to make this thing into a reality and so we're getting excited they're starting to have stakeholder meetings and they had their first planning meeting and i'm telling you guys about this because this is a this is a, f- a process that we don't get to see all the time that's not to say we don't roll new wmas on uh, not infrequently but it's a process that we don't get to see all the time. So I wanted to kind of have it out there so you knew what to expect with it. So they form a stakeholder group that meets together. Mike was able to go to that and represent sportsman, Mike Elfenbein, and uh, who we had on as an interview a few weeks back. They have folks there from the ranching community. They have folks from the community community. They have folks from the environmental community. They have folks from the developing community. Like they kind of get some stakeholders representatively in a room. They figure out, hey, this is what we're going to do. What are your concerns? What are your concerns? What do you want? What do you want? They kind of have a, a stakeholder roundtable and figure out, you know, where we need to land on this property. Orange Hammock, I don't have the number in front of me. I think it's about 5,000 acres, just a hair over 5,000 acres. And it's important from a corridor perspective. Like it provides additional corridor where the Mayaka River runs. I think it's the Mayaka. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's the Mayaka. I'm pretty sure looking at it in my head on a map, I'm pretty sure it's the Mayaka. Anyway, so what they did is they had a meeting uh, last week. And it was one evening and it was a call-in meeting. And basically what they did is they went over kind of the broad plan. We're going to create this WMA. It's going to contain these things. They didn't want to go into detail on this meeting about what hunting should look like, what fishing should look like, what horseback riding should look like. It was a very high level, high scale meeting. They'll come back later and drill into some of those things in other meetings. But they always have an initial kind of, I don't know if you call it a scoping meeting or what you call it, but... It's basically to kind of roll out what they've discussed with the stakeholders, what they've what they've kind of identified as their plan to move forward and how they're going to begin moving that down the road. So it was kind of a, hey, we're going to check this off, let you guys know what we're thinking, let, let you guys know what our plan is. Check. Hunting is in the box. Check. Fishing is in the box. Check. Bird watching is in the box. Like, that's all you needed to know at this point. So attended that meeting very uh it was very well done. The staff did a great job with it. They were able to answer the very few questions that came up and um, we'll keep you posted on Arch Hammock as more develops on that. I, I can't remember when the next meeting was. I don't think they scheduled it and I don't think they said at the end of that meeting. Um, something else I wanted to fill you guys in on is at the end of April. So now that's been, geez Louise, two weeks ago. I was invited to a hunting stakeholders meeting. Uh, in Ocala at the youth conservation camp, which is a reminder, I've been up to that camp a couple of times. If you've never seen that facility, it's fantastic. It's, it's showing its age a little bit, but still, it's like the perfect camp. It's a beautiful little setting. Um, I will tell you that if you park out in the way out lot under the trees, check yourself for ticks when you get home. But I was invited to go up there. There were, I'm going to say 10 to 15 hunting stakeholders. And then FWC had, uh, the director of hunting and game management, George Wortham was there. The director of habitat and species conservation, uh, Melissa Tucker was there. That's, you guys know, we've inter- we interviewed Kip Froelich last year. That's Kip's replacement. So Kip, Melissa took Kip's job when Kip retired. Um, the director of FWC, Eric Sutton was there. The assistant director, Dr. Thomas Eason was there. And then Greg Workman, the regional director for that region was also there. So it was kind of a unique opportunity to sit down in a room with some senior leadership and discuss a whole bunch of things. Um, They had a few items on a list that they wanted to talk about. 
Among them were restricted hunting areas. I'm going to put a pin in that and come back to it in a minute and finish with it. That one restricted hunting areas was one um, changes to the alligator regulations was one. Um, I, I, I said that I shouldn't have even said it that way. There was talk about changing the alligator regulation hours, like the, the hours that you're able to hunt to expand it and allow more opportunities. Um, there was one about steel traps there's one about the quota process, turkey reporting, like the the calling in of or calling in and or recording on an app um, when you harvest your turkey. Anyway, um, a lot of stuff was discussed. It was good to see some some old faces in the room, some some names that have been around the hunting community a long time, but also to see some new faces in the room, um, including somebody I had not met before it was David Jones from uh, Florida Disabled Outdoor Access, which. You remember a few weeks back, I did an interview with Cordell Jeter. David runs FDOA, which Cordell talked quite a bit about. Um, that's an organization aimed at getting more and more people out outdoors. And David's got a cool story. We're going to try to do an interview with him later this year. He was actually uh, shot in the head in a hunting accident. And t- terrible tragedy, shot by a, a very good friend of his and um, survived and actually uh, went on to create FDOA and just a fantastic guy with a really, really cool story. So, um tragedy but he turned it into something amazing but also in the room we had people that you guys would probably know we had uh chad rishar from uh any number of organizations bha two percent for conservation um he's been part of the cast and blast universe for a long time in fact chad joined us on stage for the first live show we ever did a couple years ago and then also from bha florida scott pinka was there you guys know that name you see it in our facebook group all the time Scott's a good friend of mine and um, we sat together and listened to the kind of the roundtable discussions and I'm going to be honest this is kind of what I heard and you'll, you'll get a little bit more candid of this from me in the patron show for those, those of our you guys that are our patreons um, but what I heard was a lot of discussion a lot about a, about a lot of details and regardless of the topic and I'll let me pick one alligator hunting hours so today i'm not a huge alligator hunter i want to say you can hunt from 5 p.m till 10 a.m the next morning and then you have to be off the water and there's talk about expanding those hours to allow 24-hour hunting or something and this is an item that they're just kind of talking about ethereally it may become an agenda item for a commission meeting down the road like not august like next year or the year after or whenever but part of the reason they initially created those hours to was to avoid uh, bad interactions at boat ramps. And I'm like, okay, well I buy into that and I get it. Like maybe you're fishing clubs that go in, but they all go in early. So they would be on the water, I guess when the alligator hunters out there. <sighs> okay. Let's, let's stick a pin in that steel traps was brought up and I'm not a trapper. Don't pretend to be a trapper. I trapped raccoons quite a bit in high school, but uh, that was primarily because they would get into my parents' trash and then I could take them and, um, what's the Lacey Act uh, statute of limitations? Anyway, um, I trapped raccoons in high school quite a bit to get rid of them so I didn't have to clean up garbage every day. But the the steel trap situation, I guess steel leg hold traps have come a long way in their technology. They don't even break the skin anymore. They typically just hold and pinch. Um, but there's still a lot of controversy, a lot of stigma when you get into like Humane Society US or PETA or anyone like that. When you talk about steel leg traps, they're very, very effective. Um, lots of 
agencies want to use steel leg traps or can use steel leg traps. I'm not sure about the legality in Florida, but so in Florida, I want to say they're prohibited. Anyway, there's a discussion about it. And again, the discussion turned to, well, we're worried about public perception of this thing. Then we, I'm going to bring up RHAs, restricted hunting, restricted hunting areas were discussed. They were discussed at length. And the way this kind of went was FWC didn't want us having a back and forth with each other. Like they didn't want me arguing with Chad or me arguing with Scott. So they would give each of us a turn to address the FWC panel that was assembled. So we didn't get into kind of a, a dog fight with each other, which I appreciate it because I, if you know me at all, you know that I am willing to debate. So uh, we start having this discussion and I really felt like what we've been saying for several years finally resonated with some stakeholders. And that is, we don't need this rule at all. And I felt like the commission heard it. I felt, or not the commission. Sorry, that was a, a misspeak by me. I felt like the director and assistant director, George, I, George has heard it. Melissa, I, I felt like those guys heard it and understood what we were saying. You guys have heard me say it before. I'm not going to belabor. If you want to know about restricted hunting areas, we've done like two or three podcasts about them. They're labeled accordingly. You can go find them. But here's the deal. If a municipality, a, a county, let me give you an example. Medard Reservoir in Hillsborough County is a 700 or so acre body of water, uh, man-made. The, the water management district created it. The county manages it. The county says you cannot hunt in Medard Reservoir. It's got a boat ramp on it. It's very wild. It's loaded. There's a alligator out there that someone messages me every year and says, hey, can we hunt this area because there's a big alligator in it? The county is dictating that you cannot hunt there. They have the ability on their property to restrict hunting already today. No different than I have two and a half acres. I'm not allowing you guys to come shoot my wood ducks and my turkeys in my backyard because I like them and it's my property. You're not allowed to do that. Um, so I have asked since the Stewart commission meeting, like three years ago, this was my first ask of the commission was why do we need this rule at all? And we've been told repeatedly that, uh, because if we don't have this rule, we'll lose in court. So I've talked to a number of lawyers, a billion lawyers. Everybody's a lawyer these days. But I, I've talked to actual lawyers that went to law school and passed the bar. And none of them believe that that's true. They believe that the way that the this agency is empowered to uh, set game hunting fishing regulations, that on state waters, waters that FWC controls, maintains, SSL, submerged sovereign land, however you want to define that, on that those waters, FWC is empowered and in, entrusted with that resource, which is what we've saying. Hello, you can go back and find our public trust episode if you want to learn more about that. But they're entrusted with that resource to manage it in a way to benefit all stakeholders. They, which means they can't just protect the, the homeowner. And something else that has come up repeatedly is when we had all this discussion of the New York rule uh, back when we were doing the letter and the sign-on letter and everybody went through all this thing. One of the things they did was they poo-pooed it right away uh, from the commission meeting and said, we can't do the New York rule. There's no reason to have it because direction of fire doesn't need to be protected. And some folks in the hunting community stood up and said, yeah, that's what we've said all along. To which I raised my hand and asked this question. If, if direction of fire doesn't need to be protected because it's protected in other places, why does me turning around and shooting someone's property need to be protected when it's already protected in other places as well. It's a redundant rule, which is what we've been saying. They're following a circular logic on this. 
and you're not going to hear me say something this bold very often. The agency's wrong about their approach on this. I support the agency. I've done a lot of work with them. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs. On this particular rule, their take on it is wrong. Now, when we got done with the conversation, uh, they, they said, yeah, we hear what you're saying. We're not even saying you're wrong about this, which is what I'm saying. But we worry about public perception. There's PR again. So we've now, I've given you three topics that were discussed. And in all three of them, public relations are the issue and the reason for the rule or management of the resource to be managed differently. That should be concerning to us as stakeholders of the resource. Um, We want science to drive whatever the things are we talk about. Uh, I've talked about bears on this podcast before. We did an actual whole episode on bears. I have no desire to bear hunt not a bear hunt. I'm not a big game guy, really. Um, at the same time, if there's enough science that indicates that there is a sustainable population that is managed, that could be managed well through hunting within some sort of compensatory additive harvest thing, why can't we hunt bears? And why should public perception of that matter? Because if public perception matters that much, why don't we just make things ballot initiatives to decide how we're going to manage the wildlife? Why do we go through science for resource management at all? I'll give you another example of this, not to belabor the point, but frankly, it's it's where we're at in this conversation. We also talked about spraying in that, that kind of hunting stakeholder meeting towards the end. They asked about spraying and I was the only tag member that was also in the, the hunting stakeholder group. And it's the same conversation to me. There's a PR issue that FWC has because of the way that they're having to handle kind of their public relations with all of their stakeholders. And FWC is the expert in this field. I I know that a lot of folks don't like that, but they are. And these guys went to school. There's a whole lot of science behind aquatic plant management. We have talked to Danielle Kirkland. We've talked to Jay Farrell. We've talked to Mark Hoyer. We've talked to Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd about fish sores and lesions and everything else. Like, a lot of the narratives out there that are being kind of crafted around the, I don't want to name names, but around some of the groups that are anti-spraying or anti-this or anti-that or anti-FWC, they're not based in science. And I feel like there has to be, and I'm, I don't know the answer. I'm, I'm kind of just postulating a little bit here, but there has to be a position wherein you say, okay, we have to trust the agency to this thing. That is how public trust works. Like the, the word is in the definition. <laughs> so I don't understand how we've gotten to this point from a public relations standpoint to where the tail is now wagging the dog and we have people that are going out there and I'm not, I'm not denigrating anyone because I've been one of them. But if I go out and don't see any ducks tomorrow on a duck hunt or I go out tomorrow and we don't catch any snook on a snook fishing trip, I, I can go raise holy hell on the internet to force the agency to change something to fix what I'm seeing. But at the end of the day, the agency has all the science, they have all the training, they have all the staffing. They are the agency entrusted with this thing. And we have to, I believe the change needs to take place with us as stakeholders. It needs to become more of a informed um, conversation than a mob with pitchforks and waving uh torches and things and yelling at people that's not productive anymore the uh the 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 end of the day nothing's nothing has changed nothing is different rhas are still scheduled to come up in august i am still pushing uh for the 
obliteration of this rule entirely because there is no reason for the rule as evidenced by all the data and evidence. But I am, I did want to kind of bring you guys up to speed on that because I see a growing concern. A thing you're going to hear me start to talk about in the future is something called the relevancy roadmap. I'm going to try to get an interview with the the gentleman that, that wrote it or one of the, the authors of it. And I believe the intention of the relevancy roadmap is a really good thing. It's, it's basically about diversifying what stakeholders look like for state wild wildlife agencies. And I think that's a, that's a good intention. Um, I just have some questions on it and some, maybe some, uh, maybe I'm just being contrarian about it, but I have some thoughts on it, questions on it that I really want to get to the bottom of that. I think she concern us as consumptive stakeholders or contributing stakeholders as I like to call us folks that buy licenses and are out in the woods, uh, hunting, fishing, uh, what have you. The last thing I wanted to tell you guys about, tease a little bit about, and again, I'm going to talk about this more in the Patreon episode is a couple of weeks ago, I was joined by a couple of listeners of the show, uh, Derek Balling and Nick Mankin. Uh, those are probably names that you guys are all familiar with by now, but those guys went with me and we went to Lake Okeechobee on a, what day? I was on a Tuesday and we pulled a Zola Pinata out from under Hyacinth. And if you didn't understand any of the words I said, you're not alone because I barely was able to get them out. But a Zola Pinata is this little fern looking thing. And if I was describing it, it's about the size of your thumbnail and it grows up under Hyacinth, which is a invasive plant. If you don't, if you're not familiar with it, it's a floating invasive plant. So it floats around in these big mats. Anyway, um, the agency reached out. They're trying to do a hand pulling because this was an EDRR, early detection, rapid response type of invasive. So that means we want to get rid of it quickly. But it's in an area that the agency committed to some stakeholders that they would not do uh, herbicides. They would not treat with herbicides. The area is uh, Bird Island in Lake Okeechobee. And it does, it has a lot of beautiful eelgrass growing. It's got a lot of really cool habitat, but it also has a lot of hyacinths growing and floating around and housing some of these other uh, invasives. Um, you start to see some muck islands forming, like the, the what are they called? Tussocks. You start to see some tussocks forming. There are myrtles and woody species growing on top of the hyacinths in some places. But anyway, huge thanks to Nick and Derek. Those guys showed up. We say it all the time that conservation isn't convenient um, and the decisions get made by those who show up. I was really proud. Our guys showed up, real volunteers, took days off of work from their regular jobs to come out there and and pull this um, needle from a needle stack. I mean, it was it was it was hard going, guys. Like we were in waiting around, you know, belly button deep to chest deep in um Lake Okeechobee and pulling this stuff out from under hyacinth and leaving the hyacinth there. And it just, it, it really was a, it was a hard day. It was a, it was a labor intensive thing. And I think it goes to show kind of the futility of a going away from aquatic plant management, IPM best practices, which would be to spray this because if this is an EDRR, if this is an early detection, rapid response species, we're just leaving it out there. Like it's just growing and, it's floating on the surface. So a good wind is going to blow it in the opposite direction. It was also compelling to me. We rode out there in the airboats and went to the pole where they had like a PVC pipe where they had marked to do this study. And this three or four acres of hyacinths had moved 300 yards away. It had blown down there and you know, pieces of that break off and go across the lake. The pieces of it break off and start new mats, other places. This stuff is super fast growing. So um, I appreciate what the agency is trying to do there that was a hard day. It was a laborious day. 
And I did not see people beating down the doors to come pull uh, plants by hand to keep off spraying. And then I also looked around at all this beautiful eelgrass growing out there. And I thought, well, why wouldn't you come in here and just spray targeted these three acres of hyacinth or these five acres of hyacinth or whatever it is and allow that eelgrass to expand. But I guess I'm going to say this and I'm gonna be careful how I say it, but I'm not really, I'm not sure why that logic doesn't get out there more and translate more. So Again, we got a little bit of a tail wagging the dog situation in the way that we're trying to appease some stakeholders. I think I'm not solving any problems with telling you guys this. I just am trying to put it into a little bit of perspective here as the overarching theme here is there's a public relations management situation occurring from the agency to stakeholders that don't agree with the agency or agree with science. And I'm fearful that if we don't continue to espouse science, espouse best management practices, espouse the the things that really matter that are right, that are, and I'm not saying right, like opinions are right or wrong. I'm saying following science or the discharge of wildlife policy should not be a negotiable thing. Um, if everyone votes that we should shut down hunting tomorrow, I don't like the way that feels because that's separating public trust, it's separating the science, it's separating the way this goes. So just some things to keep your eye on. Um, I'm seeing a common thread between everything I talked about, and I don't know if I'm communicating it very well or not, but I'm definitely seeing a common thread there. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one more before we go. A lot of talk in, in this week. So this airs on the 11th. On the 12th is the commission meeting, and I know that we're going to talk about redfish, uh, trout, and snook again, and um, whether or not they should be opened on the the kind of southwest Florida coast. And everyone's screaming about Piney Point. Everyone's screaming about Red Tide. Everyone's screaming about, screaming about, screaming about. And I keep coming back to what does the science say? And it's really such a, it's kind of a um, freeing position to take because if you trust the samples and you trust the data, and if you remember way back, it was like the second or third interview I ever did was with a guy named Eric Weather. And he works for FWRI, Florida Wildlife Research Institute, which is the research side of FWC. And they go and create the samples and do the data. And he talks about how far back they have data going. And he talks about indices of relative abundance. And he talks about Maslow's hierarchy of, or not Maslow's, the basin theory. I can't remember who, what name was, was on it. Anyway, he talks about how this science works and how deep this science is and how they try to create this science and where the gaps are in this science and where they could be filled in. And I, I go and then look at the slide presentations that have those in indices of relative abundance in them. And it shows great uh, stock assessments for all these fisheries across the board. And I'm concerned about red tide. I, I I've said on this podcast, I think we're gonna have a bad red tide year. I think, you know, I keep going back to this point, but we're coming out of a La Nina year. We already see a pronounced west wind or south southwest wind. Um, typically, red tide's going to follow that. If we have a heavy rain year, we're going to get nutrient loading. It's going to cause that stuff to blow up. That's that's a hard lift. It's also a hard fact that's a thing that, that happens in Florida. And I, I recognize that if that occurs, that's why the executive order privilege exists for the agency. They're able to put out a stop to harvest a fish if that becomes a, a concern. I don't harvest redfish, snook, or trout on my charters. No one keeps those three fish. Uh, personally, I do harvest them. I think the last year snook was open, I think I took two snook. Like, we're not out there crushing the fishery. Um, same with redfish. I think we took two redfish that year, maybe three. But at the end of the day, I think 
this is a resource that the general public wants to be able to go out there and consume. And if the science says that we should be able to do it, I tend to err on the side of science. Now, I also believe that there is, there is cautious optimism in science or cautious approaches to science. So I don't know the data that goes back into how we established our limits to begin with. So I believe there are some compromises on the, on the table as well, such as a one snook per boat limit or a one redfish per boat limit or a two trout or three trout per boat limit, something like that. Some kind of a compromise that allows the, the dad that wants to take his kids fishing on the weekend to keep a fish or three and, or the guides to still run their charters and have enough fish to keep everybody happy and allows the agency some ability and some agility to shut it down if the the stocks seem to be imperiled in some way. So I'm hopeful that is what we come out with from the agency. It's a thing I'm watching. But again, it's a situation we're in. Sometimes public outcry, public opinion is overriding science that we have on the books. And I'm just not sure that's a world I'm comfortable with as far as wildlife resource management goes. I have talked way too long about this. Make sure if you're not one of our Patreons, I've mentioned it a few times, and this is a shameless plug, but we are looking to get more of those, and it helps us put out the show every week. This show is not cheap to produce, nor is it cheap to publish, keep going, the website, uh, the hosting, the whole nine yards. So you can join us on Patreon. It's $3 a month or $8 a month. If you want to go to a higher level, you can actually commit over $8 a month. We have several people that do that, but you can find a link to that in the show notes if you're interested in doing it. And like I said, I'll go a little bit deeper in our patron show. It'll either be later this week or early next week when that comes out. Um, thank you guys so much for all you do to support us. I hope you're enjoying the conversation series. We've got a whole bunch of them lined up. I'm really stacking them up right now because we are going, Nate is getting, uh, he, he got married last summer. For those of you that don't know, Nate is one of our co-hosts and he lives in Georgia now. And he got married last summer during COVID. His wedding got postponed twice. So we are going up the first week of June to Atlanta and going to hang out with him. They're doing a big party kind of reception deal and really excited about that. But I'm trying to get ahead on my interviews so I have enough to just go contiguously all the way through the summer. And, um, man, some of the ones I'm recording, I'm really proud of them. I'm really excited for you guys to hear the stories that are being shared. So hopefully everybody has a great week. Y'all stay woke. Leave us a review if you can figure it out. And... I already said stay awake, so I can't say it again. Later. Later.